dates and either you signed the paper or you didn't while you were here. That's not what the Christian life is primarily about. That what Jesus intends to do is actually to transform us progressively over a lifetime into the kind of people that he desires us to be so that we can live out the mission that he has given to human beings quite literally from the foundation of the world. That his purposes in our lives are not just about eternal destination, but they're about mission here and now in this life and about the transformation of our of everything, of our desires, of our thought patterns, so that we can be useful in that mission to him. And so this is why our church is deeply committed to discipleship. It's why we do an eight-week course in the fall and spring and why we use language around uh, encouraging and challenging one another, both within those times and outside of those times, just in the normal everyday relationships and friendships of life. We want to be people who are as committed as God is to our own transformation. So what I thought that we would do today is look at a core text for us, a text that we return to quite a bit as a church in those discipleship courses, and that is the text uh, that speaks of Jesus as the true vine and us as the branches, this, this beautiful image that he gives. So if you would, turn with me or look on the screen on the scrolly Bible, as we've come to call it, John 15, and I'm going to read for us from verses 1 to 11. I'll give you a second to get there. John 15, verses 1 to 11. Here's what it says. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Basic structure to, to this text. Uh, one, why change is possible. Why change is possible. Two, why change is necessary. And three, how change happens. A nice little three-point sermon for you on the first Sunday of the year. Why is change possible? One of the most important things to understand about this text is its placement in the Gospel of John. Throughout the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John is just 
one of Jesus's closest friends and disciples, John, his telling of the life of Jesus. That's what a gospel is, the gospel of John. And one of the ways that John structures his biography of Jesus is around these statements where Jesus says, I am something. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. He names himself all of these various things. And this is one of them. I am the true vine. And while it may be true that what Jesus is doing is he's uh, maybe looking around and maybe there's a vineyard close and he says, oh, see those vines? I am the true vine. And then he uses it as a kind of object lesson. That may be what's happening, but certainly if you look a little bit deeper, there is another level at which these statements are working because every single one of the I am statements are also picking up on promises from the story of God's people, namely the story of God's people uh, in the Old Testament, story of Israel, and he's picking up on these various threads that work through that story, and he's saying, I am the fulfillment of that thread. I am the fulfillment of that longing that's created by the way in which God interacted with his people in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, it works on the object lesson level. But one of the things that we uh, do well to realize is it's working at a much deeper level where Jesus is picking up on one of the primary images that God uses for his people throughout the Old Testament in calling them a vine or calling them a vineyard or calling them a kind of plant. And what's interesting is as you go back through the Old Testament, and I won't go through all of these, uh, it shows up in places like Psalm 80, it shows up throughout Jeremiah's prophecy, one of the Old Testament prophets, shows up throughout Ezekiel, especially in Ezekiel 15, where you have this extended metaphor of God's people as the vine. There's one thing that stands out most about this image that God's people were meant to be a vine. God's people were meant to be a vineyard. God's people were meant to be a plant. Let me read you just one of these from the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 5 to, to just give you a sense of how this image is normally used says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. This is a song to God, and it's saying God has planted a vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard in a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, unusable grapes. You know, the, the if, if you've ever planted a, a fruit tree, sometimes you get those little, like crab apples, right? Like those little, they never quite bud. Keep going. And now I will tell you, oh, and now, sorry, this is, we're ahead of me, lovely. And now, oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to, to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I'll tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain, upon it. Just one of many examples. If I, if I just kept reading these, which I won't, what comes up again and again is God says, when I made you a people, when I brought you out of 
slavery, when I gave you a name, when I called you my family, my firstborn son. He's talking to the corporate people of Israel. He's saying it was like someone who goes and plants a vineyard. It's, and you plant a vineyard expecting there to be growth and fruitfulness from it, expecting it to be a blessing to you and to others. And he says, this, this was what my relationship, this is one way of conceiving of my relationship with you. It's like I planted you as a vine in the ground. And this goes not just back to, to one image that God chooses. It almost certainly goes all the way back to the beginning of the story where God places human beings in what? In a garden. And he tells them to do what? To be fruitful and multiply. Now, a lot of times we think that be fruitful and multiply is only talking about procreation, is only talking about have a bunch of kids and spread them throughout. That's probably the, the, the major note of the multiply part of that. But the bare fruit, as we see in the way that it's picked up in the rest of the story, think of the way that the New Testament, think of the way that even what we just read in John 15 talks about bearing fruit. Bearing fruit is a far more comprehensive call that human beings would be a blessing in the world, that we would bring flourishing out of the raw material of the earth for our good and for the good of one another. And God says, when I call my people out, I, I renewed that task that I would have a fruitful people. And yet, here is what's happened. Instead of being a fruitful people, you haven't produced and you haven't borne fruit. You haven't been a blessing. In fact, you've been complicit in the curse of this world by your rebellion against me, by your lack of obedience to me. Now, into that story comes Jesus, right? This is all getting back to John 15. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. What is he saying there? He's saying, I am what Israel was always supposed to be. And even further back than that, I am what humanity was always supposed to be. I bring life with me, true life, deep life and blessing into this world. I am the human being that you could not be because I am fulfilling what God wanted for humanity in the garden and why God replanted a people Israel in this world is so that you would be a blessing to the world and yet you are not that blessing. And so I have come as a means of redeeming that story. I've come as the fulfillment of that. And so why is change possible? Change is possible because this is precisely what Jesus came to do. This is why he calls himself the true vine. I think that sometimes we think that the sole purpose of Jesus was to come to get us out of judgment and into eternal life. And certainly that is true. Praise God that is true. And that is a wonderful aspect of the gospel, but it's to shrivel the gospel down. It's to make it an impoverished gospel, to not include the reality that Jesus came to give us new life to give us his spirit so that we too might become branches that bear fruit. Not of our own accord, right? But like, remember the whole image here. I am the vine, you are the branches, you are the things that come out of me, but I am the main source of sustenance and, and nutrients. I am, I am, I am the, the thing from which that blessing flows. So your connectedness to me is the non-negotiable of your fruitfulness. But in me, this is the language of the whole New Testament, that we are in Christ. We've been talking about this in the parables, that to be in Christ is to be one who is now connected to the source of change 
and blessing and life. So why is change possible? Change is possible because the true vine has come and now invites us into a life of fruit bearing. He provides us the opportunity to change. Why is change necessary? This is where we get a little bit into the passage. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, God, the vine dresser, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because the word that I have spoken to you abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. I'm just going to keep reading. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch, and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Why is change necessary in the life? It's necessary because it's evidence that we are connected to the vine. And all that really matters at the end of the day, at the end of your life, is were you connected to the vine? And there is no connection to the vine, this passage is saying, apart from a life that bears fruit. Because a fruitless life, an unchanged life, is one that actually bears evidence that it is disconnected from the source of life and is thrown away, right? This is an image, yet again, as we looked about at all these parables during Advent, this is an image of final judgment, to be thrown away, to be gathered, and ultimately cast out of the presence of God. And so change is necessary um, because it, it provides evidence of life. The way that he puts it in verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So prove to be my disciples. Interesting translation here. I think it's a pretty good translation. But the word that so prove to be my disciples is actually translating is just, it's actually a fairly simple uh, in the original language, uh, it's a fairly simple word that just kind of means to be. It's just the basic to be verb. And so by this my father's glorified that you bear much fruit and, and be my disciples. Prove to be is, is trying to get a little bit at the nuance here that it's not, um, it's not fruit bearing that makes us disciples, but it's proof of our discipleship. And of course, that's, that's in line with everything we've been talking about throughout the prior series. It's in line with the, with the note of the New Testament. But do you see how non-negotiably linked bearing fruit and being a disciple of Jesus are here? Such that he says, look, bear fruit, and, and, then, and then you are a disciple of Jesus. That, that's, that's, they're so deeply linked that the two go intimately together. Another reason why change is necessary, and this is where our own participation in that change comes into play, is because there is a general, call it a principle of decay, right? This works at the, at the physical laws of our universe. Is it the, I think it's the second law of thermodynamics, is that things tend toward chaos, things tend toward entropy, things tend toward decay. Right, think of anything uh, either in 
nature or, right, like even think of, of your home or your apartment or whatever it is, right? Like if you don't tend to it, what does it tend toward? Chaos, right? It tends toward decay. Or I think of any, any type of food that if you leave it out for any amount of time, unless it's actually made of completely fake chemical stuff, right? Like anything that's actually natural, what does it do as it sits out on your counter? It tends toward decay. And if the image here is fruit-bearing, then the branch that is left untended to tends toward decay. That this is, this is just a general principle of what it means to be in this universe such as it is. And it applies deeply to the spiritual life as well. I've heard one teacher put it this way, is that because of the world such as it is, a world that tends toward decay, and then you think of the spiritual realm, and it's a world that tends toward rebellion against God, that, that we live in, in a world system. Again, this is language that, that actually this same writer, John, uses elsewhere, that there's a world system that works against the ways of God, that we're in flesh, that our very desires, that our instincts, that, that our natural tendencies are against the ways of God because of the fall of sin. And then we also have an enemy Satan, who works against the purpose of it, right? You have these three uh, that, that, again, this same writer, John, calls the world, the flesh, and the enemy that are constantly working against this fruit that Jesus is seeking to bear in our lives. And so one teacher puts it this way. He said, you know, we should really imagine that in our spiritual lives that, that we're really, we tend to be on a downward escalator, that there's a lot working against us. And if you're going to go up, if you're going to progress on a downward escalator, what does that require? A whole lot of effort, right? A whole lot of effort in the other direction. <clears throat> Without effort, what is the general direction of that person? It's downward, right? And so while Jesus is the source of life and change and transformation in us, there is absolutely, irreducibly, according to not just this passage, according to the whole of the scriptures, there is a participation, there is a role that we have. And this is, this is not about uh, what theologians call legalism, the idea that my effort um, makes me holy and then God uh, hopefully is impressed by my holiness and accepts me. That could not be further from what we're talking about here. But this is a call to a kind of diligence that the New Testament is unembarrassed to call disciples of Jesus toward. And so there is effort here. Notice, uh, just to give you a sense of this, notice in verse 3 how it starts. It says, Already you are clean because of the words that I have spoken. Already you are clean. He's saying, what you're not doing is earning a status in me. What you are not doing is cleaning yourself up. That is something that I do as a miraculous work of grace in and through your salvation and conversion. Already you are clean. This is not about cleaning yourself up so that you're acceptable to God. It's just a beautiful inclusion of what he's saying here is because we can so often get this twisted that, man, if I really get my stuff together in 2022 and like crush it in these spiritual disciplines or whatever, then I will finally really and truly be 
a child of God. Then I will finally really and truly be acceptable to God. No, no, no. If you've put your faith in Jesus, already you are clean because of what he has done. This is a matter of now stepping into that which he has won for you. Because notice what it all moves toward. Look at the last verse of what we read. Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that what? My joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The reason why change is necessary is because what's left on the table by us when we do not participate in this is joy. It's joy. That's the invitation. The source of it is already you are clean. What I'm inviting you into is actually fullness of joy. And I think that this is so much, and I've said it once, I'll say it a hundred times, I think that this is so much of the crux of, of the, the Christian life of diligence in terms of pursuit of, of God changing us, of putting ourselves in a position where we can change, is we so often believe that what greater investment in the things of God, what greater, uh, let's use a scary word here, what greater discipline in the things of God will lead to is the exact opposite of joy. That we think, all right, I better get ready to be really miserable if I'm going to get serious about the spiritual life. That's not what Jesus says. That is contrary to his vision here. Right? Like, I think that many of us, and maybe, maybe if you're like me, you grew up in church, and maybe some of it was the way that the church articulated things, maybe a little bit was just the way that me and in my own brokenness processed it. But I think a lot of us tend to believe that the life of true change and transformation is basically a decision to say no to all of the things that actually bring joy to a human being and to say yes to a bunch of things that only a few bizarre, like monks and nuns, really enjoy. And that the rest of us normal people know are like real sacrifices, like real sacrifices. And we think that that's part of the point and why God set it up that way is because if I'm willing to say no to all the fun stuff and to say yes to all the miserable stuff, then I will begin to show him just how much I appreciate what he's done for me. When actually what he's saying is, already you are clean, you got nothing to earn, and I'm saying these things to you. I'm saying that change is the non-negotiable of the Christian life because what you're leaving on the table is true joy, is my joy. Yeah, it might not be a joy that necessarily jives with what you've come to define as joy by what the world does, by what your flesh says is joyful, by what the enemy lies and says joy is found in, but it's my joy. And guess who gets to define what actually makes the human machine fully alive? The one who created it, right? Like he knows its optimization, right? If you think of it like a computer program, like the one who created it knows all the nooks and crannies and how it functions best. They're gonna be the one who knows how to fix it and knows what it looks like when it's optimally flourishing. That one says, what I'm inviting you into in the life of abiding in me is fullness of joy, is my joy in you. And just because you don't have a category for it, because all of your joys are lesser, because you've allowed these other things 
to define them, as we all do, doesn't mean that what's on the end of you pursuing my joy is some kind of disappointment, is some kind of, ah, the world had it right all along, right? This is where do we really believe that Jesus means what he says? How does change happen? First, we have to understand that we're working from purity and cleanness and toward joy. That is, that is thing number one, right? Like, we have to know, you have to know what this isn't about because when you believe that your salvation, that your status as a child of God, that God's spirit residing in you is dependent upon your performance, you will by definition fail because no one can bear up under that responsibility of maintaining your connectedness to Jesus as something that is entirely on you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, that, that will burn you out quick, right? And it's already burned some of us out, right? It's why a lot of us no longer give effort and attention and intentionality to our spiritual lives, because we say, man, I tried that, and I just felt like such a bad Christian all the time that I just don't want to fail again. Whoa, whoa, already you are clean. And then we have to understand what we're pointing towards because a lot of times that failure, then the message that we got from it is, oh, that made me miserable. Well, I wonder if it makes us miserable because so often we forget what we're working from and what we're working toward. I think sometimes we think we're working from a need to gain something that is not yet ours and toward a lack of joy. And we just find it so hard to give up these other desires in order to be a good Christian or whatever it is when actually there's fullness of joy. I love, one of the things that just keeps going through my mind, even just from my own personal walk with Jesus, is something that John Mark Homer, that pastor that I stand up here and quote a lot uh, out in Portland, something that he says, which is, he says so often what we get wrong about the Christian life is that we think our strongest desires are our deepest desires. We think our strongest desires are our deepest desires. I already hear some hmms, right? Like, I think you're maybe already tracking what he's saying there. Is that sometimes we think that because we feel those desires that want to find joy in the way our flesh says joy is found, or those desires that, that the world defines, that because those are so often so strong, that they're actually the, the definition of our deepest desires. Whereas what he says is, no, actually, to become a Christian is to have desires placed deep within us that that are far more lasting, that are far more substantial than those those desires that are often just just stronger, that are often more aggressive in our lives. And that so much of the Christian life is beginning to just allow those desires to get closest to the surface such that they become our instinct, our behaviors, that they function in our lives more. This is why one of the most encouraging things that you can feel as a Christian is frustration that you do not pursue those deepest desires. That that's actually an acknowledgement. When you say, why do I keep running after that when I know it's so much better when I say no to that and say yes to this? It's, yeah, because you have deeper desires that have been implanted in you. Now, you have all this other stuff over top of it. You have all this other, whatever you want to look at it as. You have this garbage heap on top of it from a lifetime lived pursuing those other desires. So they're quicker. They're working at the at the level of instinct more than those deeper desires. But this is why so much of the vision, especially of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, great 
Christian theologian and teacher of the first century, is so much of what he says is the Christian life is about becoming who you are. It's becoming who you are in Christ. It's actually living into these deeper desires that are now in you and allowing those to become functional in your life. And so much of the effort that we have, and and I just find this so helpful, that so much of the effort that we need is really just clearing away that other stuff to let this stuff pop through and go, oh, that was so much better. And then so often what happens is that other stuff kind of closes in. Why do I go back to that? No, let me... And, and we find over time that stuff begins to clear out. And those deeper desires do work. Do you hear how that's fullness of joy being offered us? Because we're actually, our deeper desires are what define us. And I think that there's a kind of defeat that the enemy wants us to believe when we wrongly believe that our strongest desires are our deepest desires. Because we say, this is still who I am. This is still who I am. I'm just the person who actually wants this. No, 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 listen to the Spirit's frustration saying, no, this is not who you are. This is exactly not what you want. And the frustration is because you're living out of step with your identity. You're not living in step with your identity, right? Like how many of us, when we fall back into those stronger desires, actually feel the least like ourselves in those moments. But what the enemy wants to say is, this is who you are. No, no, listen to the Spirit saying, this is not who you are. Not in a condemning voice saying, these, these are those stronger desires but it is not the desires that actually now rest in your soul in the deepest parts of who you are. Remember what you're working from. Remember what you're working towards. And then the two simple images that this gives us of how change happens are these two words that show up, abide and pruning. This idea of pruning, right? This this image of the vine. Abiding. Um, I could read the passage again, but did you hear it enough? Abide in me, abide in me, abide in me, abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing, so abide in me. The word abide, which we don't really use in normal English, you know, conversation, American English. It's not like, I don't know when the last time you used that. Like, oh, I'm just abiding. The one thing that comes to mind is Big Lebowski, right? The dude abides. Um, that means something to like one of you, maybe on YouTube, because it meant nothing to anyone here. Um, but like, we don't use that term. The, the term that's actually used here is a much more common term that they translate to try and get at some of the nuance of, uh, of how Jesus is using it. But the word that's used here is just the normal Greek word for staying somewhere, uh, remaining somewhere. My favorite use of this word that I think demonstrates it well is actually in the story that our church gets its name from of Jacob's well. There's a part in that story where after Jesus' interaction with this woman, she goes into the city, she tells everybody, about what she's experienced. And then Jesus goes into the city and the people say to him, Jesus, stay with us. Stay with us. Don't leave too quickly. You were were about to just go to the next town, but stay with us. And then it says, he stayed with them for three days. Stay with us, Jesus. He stayed with them for three days. Same word as abide here. It's a way of of just saying, uh, stick with us. Hang out for a while. Remain with us. And Jesus is saying, This is what the Christian life takes. No, no, stay with me. Stay with me. Remain with me. Hang out for a while. Be with me. (laughs) And we make it so many other things when really what it is, is Jesus is like, would you hang out with me like once in a while? To be a friend, to be a parent, to be a spouse, be in any meaningful relationship, 
there's got to be some time where you just are with each other. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, I got to be with you. That's what it takes. Remain in me. Like, abide. Abide with me. Hang out. Chill with me. Talk to me. Tell me what's going on. Right? We can make it so much more than that. And look, this is where those other desires get in the way, right? Because at the end of the day, the God of the universe, your Savior, your Redeemer, your Salvation, your Rescuer, your Great Counselor, your Loving Father, your friend that sticks closer than a brother is like, would you just spend time with me, right? And what are those other desires? Yeah, but there's Instagram. Oh, but, oh, it's Wednesday. A new episode comes out today, right? Is that who you really are? No, right? No. Those stronger desires, the swipe desire, right, is stronger, but there's a deeper desire that you are just quenching by saying, no, geez, I don't, I don't have time to abide, right? In some ways, it is profound in some ways it is just so unbelievably simple but what jesus is saying is 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 you gotta you gotta be with me gotta be with me right like i think of some of the content of our discipleship course and in the the emotional 101 we talk about how so often our doing for god outweighs our being with god right and that that's one of the things that that we want to get more on balance is that we would be with god as much as we do for god that there is this need for for the soul that's been brought back to the source of its actual life, to be connected, to be in some sense connected to that. The two things specifically, I think this is interesting in this passage. If you look at verse 7, the two things that we're specifically told to abide in, you do the hard work. Verses 7 through 9, what are the things that we're specifically told to abide in? You have masks on, so you're, you're allowed to talk. Anybody? Love is one of them. Abide in my love, right? It's one of them. What's the other one? It's in verse 7. My words. Good. Those are the two things that we're specifically told to abide in. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have I loved you. Abide in my love. We are to abide in the words of Jesus and the love of Jesus. And so whatever your practice of doing this might look like, it should include something that connects you to the love of Jesus and that connects you to his words. Like a lot of people ask, you know, uh, especially in, in a church like ours, circles like ours, evangelical circles, right, where we talk about devotional times or, you know, um, a quiet times, something like that, right? Like, no, there's not chapter and verse for that in the scriptures, but there is chapter and verse for we're to remain, hang out with, be present with the love of Jesus and the words of Jesus in a very regular way. And so quiet times, devotional times, yeah, it's a pretty good, <laughs> pretty good venue for it. So long as what you're doing there is you're experiencing the love of Jesus and you're abiding in his words. You're, you're reminding himself of your words. Let me give you a very, very simple practice that you might consider as you head into 
uh, a new year. This is something that, um, that for me uh, really came like whenever it was, two years ago now, I guess, when we did uh, spiritual discipleship one-on-one for the first time. And this was the most consistent, most robust kind of abiding practice that I'd ever developed, and I do it um, not perfectly, but, but this is what I do. I work through a little thing that's P-R-A-Y, um, pray, pray. There you go, P-R-A-Y. First thing that I do is pause. I find that the, so often the battle really comes down to how do I make the transition? I'm a night person, by the way. I'm a night owl. I don't do the get up early thing. I'm a night owl. So a lot of times I'm, I'm up after my family has gone to sleep. And what the, the battle for me is so often, do I make the transition from YouTube videos, from the basketball game, from whatever's on, from texting on my phone? Do I make the transition from that to actually a time of abiding? And I have found that the pausing, that just saying, taking two minutes, like we do in daily office, if you've ever done discipleship course with us, just taking two minutes, setting my phone. If you go to my phone right now, I can almost guarantee the timer's on two minutes, because this is what I do. Set it for two minutes, and I just get quiet. I find that that allows me to disconnect from whatever I've been engaged with and to begin connecting with God. So I pause, two minutes. Um, sometimes that two minutes becomes five. There's times where that two minutes becomes 15. That's kind of primarily what I do. A lot of times I just need two minutes. I just need two minutes to pause. That's P. R is rejoice. Um, I've turned this into, uh, there's a practice in our, in our spiritual discipleship course course called the prayer of examine that just hit with me. It just, it just made sense because it's a prayer that you pray at the end of the day and as a night owl, it worked for me. So rejoice, um, I just work back through my day and thank God for the good things that I experienced in the day, literally starting from the time I woke up. God, thank you that I got to sleep in a little bit because my wife got up with the boys and thank you that, you know, I was able to do whatever today. Thank you for that conversation I have. And what it does as someone, especially in a season that's really overwhelming and a season that's really stressful, anybody say amen, right? really helpful to go back through a day and say, no, I have things to, to give thanks for. I have things to be grateful for. It's helped me out a huge bunch. As I go through my day, what I find is that I'll come to moments where I realize, oh, I really need to pray for that. Or, ooh, I'm actually really anxious about that interaction. Or, ooh, I told this person that I would pray for them. So I keep a little journal next to me. And as I work back through my day, I just write things down that I can, I can be praying about. After that rejoice part, then I move to A, that's ask. That's the, all right, I'm going to pray about a bunch of stuff, whatever's on my mind, right? Like one of, one of my little things that I'm doing, even in response to this message this morning, is I just want to get better at tracking uh, just the needs of people around me. And so that, that journal has been helpful towards that end. And so I'll pray into that. And then what I do is after the ask, a lot of times in the midst of that prayer, that's where anxiety starts to come up. That's where some questions that I have about what I need to do in a given situation come up. That's when I go to the scriptures, is after ask. And, and it's in line with why. Why is yield. And so I begin to allow God to speak into all that other stuff. <clears throat> and so for me, very simple practice that I've had is I just read a psalm or two a day. Psalm or two a day, and then I'm always reading some other part of scripture. For, for the last six months, I read through the, the minor prophets, um, which is... A wild romp, if you ever want a weird part of it. But what I found again and again, and guys, I am not doing this to prop myself up. I am not the paragon of consistency and spiritual power. I do this in fits and starts imperfectly. I am not doing this to say, like, follow me. I'm saying this, guys, if I can do this, 
you, that's more what I'm saying. Like, if I can actually get some kind of, some sort of, like, uh, Major League Baseball batting average on this, right? Like, not batting a 1,000, far from it. Um, I'm just commending to you. I think a lot of times we just don't know what to do. Where do I say, okay, I'm going to pray for a half hour. And then you get, like, 30 seconds in, and you're like, okay, 29 and a half more minutes. So just go. Okay, so I, I open them up. Here's what I find so often is whatever I was praying about, there is a weird way in which God's words speak back to it. It is like a weird thing. I can't even tell you how often uh, this happens. It is I'll be like, I'm really nervous about this, really worrying about this. You open some random psalm, and there's a line in there where you go, whoa, that feels like God's word to me. I've, I've experienced more of God speaking back to me. And, and sometimes, yeah, I, I lean a little charismatic. So sometimes it's directly, and I sense God speaking. Some, a lot of times, though, most times, it's, it's just through his word. It's abiding in the words of Jesus, Right? It's allowing him to speak back to the situations of life. And then I'm done. And I'm done. That's my time. Sometimes, most times that takes about 20 minutes, I would say. Sometimes I look up and I've been doing it for like an hour and I feel super spiritual for a second. Um, and then I feel like I ruined the whole time because I feel super spiritual. But sometimes I'm like, wow, that was a wonderful time we've got. And I like feel God knocking like, would you, you are so much, right? Like, um, and then sometimes I look up and it's been seven minutes and I go, okay, right? Like I'm married, this is my wife here, right? And sometimes when we hang out, it's, it's wonderful and we, we have a long night together and deep conversation. Sometimes it, it's, it's just checking in. Hey, how are you? Hey, I'm kind of tired tonight. You know, like I'm kind of beat, um, everything okay? Yeah, I'm okay. And let's watch a show or whatever, right? Like we're talking about relationship here. All he's saying is abide with me, right? Spend time with me. And I think for some of us who haven't done this for so long, we feel like we have to come sheepishly to him and to say, I've never done this before. It's been years since I've done this or I'm doing this solely because pastors God said that I should on Sunday and I know that you hate women. Jesus is like, oh, come on, abide with me. It's wonderful that you're turning toward me and talking because I know you got a lot going on and I think I can help you. <laughs> I'm the creator of the universe. Abide with me. That's one part of it, abiding. The next is pruning. It's a wild, this is just a wild concept. Verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I love this. Because it's actually counter, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm not necessarily a seasoned farmer, but it's contrary to my expectation. It's like every plant that doesn't bear fruit, he takes it away, he rips it off right? Like um, picture a branch on the ground that's dead, right? That thing ain't bearing fruit. He snaps it off. He takes it away. It says every, every branch that does bear fruit, I would expect it to say something like he leaves alone so that it can keep doing its thing. Or like he congratulates it and gives it a little, little pat on the branch of like, good job, little branch, like great job. No, it says, no, he prunes it. Do you know what pruning is? Do you know what that image is? It's cutting stuff away. It's a violent process. It's like not, it's, it's not a, uh, it's not petting. It's not like um, rewarding. It's not even, it doesn't even say, right? Like it'd be cool. I'd like this metaphor better. If it was like in every branch that does bear fruit, he gives it more water, right? Like, oh, that would work. That would work with like the story of Jacob's well, living water. No, no, he prunes it. All right, here's your image. Uh, I remember, I talked about this years ago. Some of you might remember this. This is, this is my image for pruning. Does anyone know what these are called? Anybody? Oh, who? 
You, sweetie? Look at this. My wife, ladies and gentlemen. Gold star. Called suckers. Called suckers. Anybody ever had a tomato plant where you have to take the suckers off? Okay, these are called sucker branches because it's on a tree. I know that it isn't in line with the vine. These are called sucker branches. Um, a lot of people don't believe this. This is always my like two truths and a lie thing is I actually worked on a farm. Worked on a farm for a summer. Um, it was a youth development program, but we did farming because it puts everybody at sort of the, the same level. Beautiful program, food project. Look it up. But I worked on a farm for a summer. And one of the main things that we had to do was deal with suckers, was deal with sucker branches. And why they're called sucker branches is because it's a branch that isn't, I mean, if, if I took the whole tree, right, there are these big, healthy, strong branches that are actually bearing this fruit. You see this fruit up here. But what these are, <clears throat> are branches that pop up. Like if you look at any tree outside, they probably have sucker branches because they're not tended to. We don't have a church arborist. Um, but sucker branches come out, and what they do is that they siphon off nutrition from the rest of the tree, even though they themselves will never grow to the point, will never be healthy enough to the point that they themselves can bear fruit. They come along later in the process, which is actually one of the reasons why even though they look new because they're fresher, they come further down the tree because the tree has already grown and then these other offshoots grow from it. And what sucker branches do is that they, they siphon off nutrients and they, um, they threaten the health of the rest of the tree. And so what you do um, is you need to cut off those suckers or pluck them off. It's a tomato plant. It's, it's much easier. Some people, uh, there's a whole nuance to the tomato thing. Sometimes they can actually grow and make tomatoes, but that ruins the image. Um, but, but what you do is you prune them. And this is not a, you got to have these big old, I remember doing, doing fruit trees much like this. And you have to take these big things and go, ka-chunk, and then the thing falls off and everybody kind of celebrates because normally it takes a little while. Why does Jesus say every branch that does bear fruit gets pruned? It's because he knows that inevitably there is stuff in our lives that come along that distract us. This is why the images abide. What's the opposite of abiding? The opposite of abiding is getting distracted, wandering off, and going elsewhere other than where you're supposed to be, right? It's, it's, this, it's this idea of distraction. It's this idea of going off. It's this idea that suckers arise in our lives that are actually taking time and energy and joy away from us that threaten the overall health of our branch. And God is gracious to come along and to clip those things away, say that thing's got to go. Because if that thing keeps taking what is rightfully mine, There will be decay. There will be less fruit than would otherwise be. Right? Like, this isn't all about us. This isn't all about you'll have less joy. This will also be, right? The whole reason why I love the image of bearing fruit is because branches don't eat fruit. Other people eat fruit. Right? Like, the idea of you being fruitful is not just about your own experience. Like, even think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Some of that is something that you want to be, but like gentleness and kindness and these other things, these are blessings to other people, right? Like, and so part of him taking the suckers out of your life to say, I want you to be maximally fruitful, yes, for your own joy, but also for the joy of others. 
And so I don't want to overcomplicate the image here. I think you get it, right? Like we got to figure out ways to abide, and then we got to look at our lives and say, where are the sucker branches? Where are the things that have to go for me to actually begin to experience greater health? What are the things that tend to distract me? What are the things that tend to take my time, energy, and focus that could actually be placed on abiding in Jesus? It feels like to not land this super practically would, <laughs> would be a, a mistake given this text, right? Um, so I want to give you a little bit of time. It is January 2nd, 2022, and uh, New Year's resolutions abound, right? And I could do the whole New Year's resolutions and hate on that and all that stuff. Um, but look, instead, I'm going to capitalize on it and say, it is a good time, right? The turning of the calendar has a way of making us look, take a fresh look at the rhythms of our life. What I'm asking you to do is to say, don't just do that in order to fulfill those strong desires, right? That strong desire to be successful in my job, and so I need to be more you know, disciplined, and so this is my New Year's resolution. Those stronger desires say, I want to be an attractive person, and I want to be blah, 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 and I want to look a certain way, so I'm going to get more disciplined and get a Peloton or whatever, right? Like, not hating on those at all. I'm just saying that notice that a lot of what we tend to focus our intentionality and change on are those, yes, yeah, strong desires, the things that we immediately say, oh, these things would finally make me happy, I'd finally be happy, and we leave these things dormant and give no intentionality to them. And so what would it look like for you to have a little bit more intentionality in the ways in which you abide in Jesus? What could a new practice be? What could a new rhythm be? Right, I'm going to leave this totally to you, but I'm going to give you a few minutes to, to really think about this. Some of you have beautiful practices around this, and maybe it's just a tweak here or there. You say, oh, yeah, I hadn't really thought about what section of the Bible I might read through next, or I hadn't really thought about maybe some new practices around Sabbath that, that we could do to really make that richer, right? It might be that, it might be, yeah, I got to try this for the first time. If it's trying it for the first time, I love in our discipleship course that we always say, don't think beyond like one to three months, right? Don't say for the next seven years, right? Like I'll read through the Bible 30 times or whatever. Like, no, just relax. Maybe like read through the first 20 Psalms over the next two months, which, which on average, you know, is every, every couple days you actually find yourself in the script. Start reasonably, right? Like remember what you're working from. You're working from already being clean, already being a child. You're working toward joy, right? And you're working with a gracious vine dresser, right? Who has been so patient already with you, who has gone to the cross to make change and life available to you, and now, even through the preaching of this word, is saying, I'm just asking you to step a little bit more into joy so that I can maximize the fruitfulness that comes from your life. And so, start small, be reasonable, but be intentional, right? Be intentional. So, just two questions. What might some new rhythms, focuses around abiding in Jesus look like for you in this next month, three months? And then what needs to go? What needs to prune? Right? Because Here's, here's what the pruning is. It says that this is something that God does, that God the Father does. In other words, I think that there's two ways that he primarily prunes us. One is situationally through the circumstance of our life. Is he'll just take stuff away. Right? Like if you've walked with Jesus for any amount of time, you know that there are just seasons where one of the things that he does in the midst of suffering is he cuts stuff away. Right? So there is that. But again, I think that we can also participate in that pruning. Say, I know that this you know, sucker <laughs> is growing up in my life, and I know that it needs to go. Right? What, what might need to go? And again, don't say I'm never going to watch TV again if your TV, right? Like, whatever. Start small. So yeah, maybe we turn the TV off. 
at some point um, in, in order to facilitate this. So just what does abiding look like? What might pruning look like? I'm going to give you three minutes to do some business. Take out your phone. Write something down. I see a couple journals out, which is great. Um, for those of you at home, really do this. Don't just run off to, to the next thing right now. Really take some time. Um, write some stuff down and say, yeah, th this is what abiding might look like in this new year. This is what maybe needs to be pruned. Um, and then I'll lead us into community in just a couple minutes. Cool? Ready? Take two or three minutes. Before we take communion, I just want to issue one more challenge, which is, would you, uh, by the end of the day, and maybe that person is sitting right next to you, would you just share with one person, um, for the sake of accountability, what came to mind for you? Uh, maybe on the car ride home, maybe you can text them right now. Uh, just say, hey, what, what came to mind for you in terms of abiding and pruning? Um, there's something about actually saying it out loud actually saying it's someone who loves us, uh, that, that makes it real. And um, just remember, right, what, what we're being offered is fullness of joy, the joy, Jesus's joy, whatever that means, right? And for some of us, we just don't have a category for that, and yet that's what's on offer. Um, we work from cleanness and purity and status in Christ, and that's what this meal is all about.
is to come back to this table 